Fred, thank you for that plug for prayer, specifically revival. And just a a reminder, uh, this sermon series that I'm embarking on that we'll be on together for the next uh, four or five months, when the, there we go, prayer, conversations with God. Every week, my plan is to focus or introduce you to a a prayer discipline, the effect of which is to make God more clearly available to us. You know, I've mentioned several times now over the last few weeks the the fact that in our secular culture there are many people who don't believe in God, think that God is absent, irrelevant, or dead, uh, and, and unfortunately, that has a tendency to seep into our thinking sometimes as well. We just kind of go along with the culture that says God is not important. Uh, the thing that I would recommend uh, to, to make us most aware of the fact that God is not dead, God is not irrelevant, God is the most important relationship that we have, and the way we, we recognize that most clearly is through prayer. When you're having a conversation with God and you begin to experience his response to that, when you begin to experience the effects of being in relationship with God, it's kind of hard to believe that he's irrelevant, right? So do pay attention each week throughout this sermon series to the ways that we can be more engaged with God through prayer. But I want to begin this morning talking to grandparents grandparents, and I know there are quite a few here, how is being a grandparent better than being a parent? You go home at night. How is being a grandparent better than being a parent? Fewer responsibilities. Somebody else. More time to have fun. I think fun is the operative word there. Yeah, all right. We've got a few kids here today, so I'm going to ask them a question too. And if you're at home watching online, you might want to use the chat to uh, respond to this question. But kids, what makes grandparents better than parents? I'm assuming that this is the case, right? What makes grandparents more fun than parents? More time together, perhaps, which is either a good thing or a bad thing, depending on who it is. Money in your birthday card. Money in your birthday card, that's right. Being able to laugh at things that you wouldn't been wouldn't have been able to laugh at with your own kids. There's a, there's a real difference in those relationships, isn't there, between being a parent or being a grandparent. Uh, grandparents have different roles. Their role is, as I was taught this, their role is to spoil their grandchildren. But parents, <laughs> parents, really, as parents, 
spoiling our kids was was not something that we wanted to do, right? That just makes bad kids. But somehow grandparents get away with that. On on the other hand, parents have this this difficult role of teaching and disciplining and discipling. It's hard work. So I want to take a look this morning at a situation in Jesus's family that highlights the challenging role of parenthood. Join me in Luke chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading at verse 41. The challenging role that Mary and Joseph had as the parents of Jesus. Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. But they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And they really ought to insert the word there, in panic they went back to Jerusalem to look for him, right? After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw them, they were astonished. And man, I wish I knew what that word really meant. (laughs) They were astonished. His mother said to him, and oh, here you've got to hear the tone of voice, right? His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And then what tone of voice do you think Jesus had? Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Mary and Joseph had all the usual roles as Jesus' parents, didn't they? They were assuming the role of protection, And provision. And theirs was perhaps the primary role in teaching him. Teaching him so many things. How to talk. And what to believe. And how to get along with friends. And how to be a responsible part of the the community. All of these responsibilities were the things that every parent had in that culture and in our culture. But on top of that, I imagine that there was probably this burden of uh, responsibility associated with the fact that they were raising the Son of God. Might that not have added just a wee bit of pressure (laughs) to the normal responsibilities of parents? Parents often begin life with a new baby thinking that they can control that child's life, right? And you can get away with that for a few years. 
I mean, literally, as a baby, if they're not going any place if you don't pick them up and carry them there, right? But eventually, they're going to learn how to walk and learn how to run and, and how to get ahead of you, and you're going to begin to lose some of that control. But initially, parents think they've got control of this child's life, keeping them from getting into trouble, guiding them into a desired career path, perhaps, teaching them all the things that they know to, know to be a successful husband or wife or parent. But what if every day your child instead introduces you to some mysterious, new, confusing character quality or attitude? What if your son is the son of God and he starts saying and doing things that you, you, you know, where did that come from? I didn't teach him that. Or how disorienting might it be if he was... If, if, if it were to constantly be encountering these new, exciting, dangerous, misunderstood situations that your child gets himself into. I imagine that they were probably constantly being baffled by the things that he said or that he did. Perhaps kind of feeling like outsiders because there was something going on in him that was different from every other child in the neighborhood. How do you teach a child who is now wise enough to teach the temple leaders and the teachers of the law? <laughs> I can imagine Joseph or Mary saying, Mary asking, what could I possibly add to his education? What would it be like to have lost the Son of God in a big city in a huge festival? Mary says, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. I think it would have been perfectly understandable for her to feel that feeling and to have that kind of an attitude in her tone of voice when they found Jesus in the temple. While it was no doubt a, an exceptional responsibility that they had, I imagine that it was also an opportunity for them to create a bond, to experience an attachment with Jesus that was unlike those of every other parent. Don't you think so? You know what it's like to feel exceptional in some small way. And to have some other people that you're closely related to who are exceptional in the same way. It kind of creates a bond, right? Because nobody else in the class, nobody else in the office, nobody else in the neighborhood is like us. Sometimes you feel like you've got your back against the wall and you've got to look out for each other and stick up for each other because you're different somehow. Well, I would imagine that while there were these extraordinary responsibilities they had for being the parents of the Son of God, I imagine that that led to probably a stronger relationship among them than perhaps any other family in Nazareth experienced. Even though that bond would sooner or later have to be broken. This is the perspective I'm imagining that Mary and Joseph had raising this little boy who was the son of God. Let's take a look at, at the situation, though, from the 12-year-old's perspective. We, we don't know what 
Jesus knew about himself at this age, or at any age for that matter, until he's an adult and begins to, to say and teach and do things that we can kind of give us a glimpse into his mind. But at this age, at this stage of his life, we don't really know what Jesus was aware of. But he, there must have been some dawning awareness in his mind that he was some sort of a spiritual prodigy, don't you think? He's there in the temple having a conversation with trained teachers of the law, some of the, the people most deeply steeped in the word of God, and he's able to ask them questions that reveal not just his curiosity about things, but also reveal to them that he knows more about this perhaps than they do. I suppose Mary would have told him about the angel's annunciation. Don't you think so? Don't you think at some point in his childhood, Mary might have trotted out the fact that an angel told her that she was going to have this miracle baby who was going to be the Messiah? Maybe when he was, uh, you know, getting a little bit frisky or something, she said, no, you're, you're the son of God. <laughs> Let me tell you the story again. I wonder what that would have led to him thinking about himself. One thing we know about adolescents, teenagers, is that it's a stage of life in which they are becoming individuated. That's the 25-cent word that they use for that, adolescent individuation. Uh, to this very day, we understand it more clearly probably, but there's this task that teenagers have that comes across as rebellion or independence, but really it's that person becoming their own person. They've been taught these things as children, what to believe and how to act and how to behave. But at some point, oftentimes in adolescence, they have to decide whether those are going to be their values, their beliefs, their customs, their habits. The stages that children and teenagers go through is, is fairly well established, and, and we celebrate it here, here in church, in, in most churches. Infants are either usually dedicated or baptized as an acknowledgement of the fact that God is already at work in their life, even before they can possibly understand God. But then come the teenage stages of spiritual development, Teenagers begin to make choices about what they believe and how they're going to live their lives according to God's law or not. Sometimes teenagers at a teen camp, oftentimes at a teen camp, will respond to the movement of the Holy Spirit in their life and they'll put down a deeper root relationship with God, right? Many of you probably had that kind of an experience at a camp or a retreat as a teenager, they're making their own faith as God reveals himself to them. There are confirmation classes or membership classes that young people go through that steep them in the traditions and the, in the, the theology of the spiritual traditions of which they are a part. There's a, baptism, a believer's baptism oftentimes taking place in teen years. While they may have been dedicated or baptized as a child, in many traditions there's an opportunity as a teenager, as an adolescent, to say, while, while I'm grateful for what my parents and what the Holy Spirit was doing in my life before I was aware of it, now I know that I've accepted Christ as my Savior I'm going to make a testimony, a statement of that by being baptized, a believer's baptism. 
These were the kind of things that were going on in Jesus' life. I wonder, and it caught my attention this time around, why does Luke mention that Jesus was 12 years old when this happened? Perhaps it's a, a nod at that adolescent individuation, that making your own decisions. But 12 means something different in the Bible, doesn't it? 12 is an indication that a choice is being made, a selection is being made, an election is being made. So there are 12 tribes of Israel who were chosen by God to be his chosen people. When Jesus begins gathering disciples, he ends up with 12. Among the many disciples, there are 12 who would go on to be apostles. 12 who were chosen like the tribes of Israel to be the inner circle around Jesus. Jesus made that choice. So here is a child. At age 12, Jesus is making a choice. He made a choice, an intentional choice, to remain behind in Jerusalem because he wanted to be in his heavenly Father's house. At age 12, Jesus is making a choice to transfer the title of Father from Joseph to Yahweh. He's making a commitment to, he's consecrating himself to his heavenly father. This is a huge turning point in Jesus's life. He's no longer a boy. He's now embarking on a life of total obedience to his heavenly father. And he's making this a very intentional conscious choice. Jesus' statement, didn't you know I had to be in my father's house, was a thunderclap of dawning self-awareness and a dramatic change in his relationship with his parents. But it was more than that. For our benefit, it's also the articulation of one of the most important prayers that we need to learn. And I want you to take it away from this sermon, the prayer that Jesus was praying there in those words. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Being human means making attachments, doesn't it? We make connections, we make commitments, we enter into contracts with people, we have covenants, we have marriage vows that we exchange, we make commitments to, uh, to, to work a certain way, to, to go to school a certain number of days, we make all kinds of commitments. It's normal, and it's expected. I thought back to the creation story where Moses says, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. What an extraordinary covenant, commitment that a couple enters into when they get married. It's, It's normal. That's what people are supposed to do. That's what makes our families and our neighborhoods and our communities strong because we're willing to make commitments to one another. But at some point, those attachments have the potential of becoming barriers to us making an even more important commitment to our Heavenly Father. You get that? Sometimes the commitments we've made to one another in so many different ways can become a barrier to us making an even more important commitment to our Heavenly Father. So there's this spiritual discipline that's called detachment to address this potentiality. 
We have numerous preoccupations that get in the way of our hearing and responding to God's call. Think about the fears that we have that can get in the way to us doing what God wants us to do. Think about prejudices and greed, the need to control things that gets in the way of us having a deeper relationship with God. Perfectionism, jealousies, resentments, excessive self-doubts can keep us from making an ultimate commitment to God. Lacking spiritual freedom, we become excessively attached to persons, places, material possessions, titles, occupations, honors, and the acclaim of others. Those become more important to us than what God wants for us sometimes, don't they? These tendencies bind us and hold us back from loving God and from loving ourselves and from loving others as we ought to. I think of that bit from the letter that that John wrote down uh, to the church in Ephesus that we find in, in Revelations. Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, you've lost your first love. He gives us a glimpse into what might have cost, uh, caused that loss of their first love, but that's, that's what, you know, God wants to be our first love, Amen. He wants to be our greatest priority, right? But there are all of these other commitments, all of these other attachments, all of these other temptations that have the opportunity to get in the way of that primary commitment to God. They become disordered attachments or disordered loves when they push God out of the center of our life. And they become the key to our identity. The prayer discipline associated with disordered attachments is called the prayer for indifference. Say that with me. The prayer for indifference. Indifference is one of those old words that's taken on new meanings, but essentially indifference means that we don't care about the things that we used to care about. We're indifferent to them we're willing to consider something new and something different. We're not going to be slaves to the old things. So the prayer for indifference. The prayer for indifference is one in which we ask God to make us indifferent to anything but the will of God. The fears, the priorities, the attachments, the affections, the finances. I want first and foremost to know and be able to do the will of God. It is to ask for the grace to be indifferent to matters of ego and prestige, organizational politics or personal opinion or personal advantage or personal preferences or even ownership of a pet project. It doesn't matter what I'm dreaming about doing. I want God and I want God only. We ask God for the grace to desire his will. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Jesus at age 12 provides us with an example, a role model of what the detachment process looks like. Jesus was saying, thanks mom and dad. For all that you have poured into me, 
I know it wasn't an easy job. I know that there were extraordinary pressures and responsibilities, and I know that this had the, the effect of creating in our family this extraordinary bond. But now it's time for me to detach from that and to attach myself to my heavenly Father. I had to be in my Father's house because this is what he is calling me toward. At age 12, Jesus is giving us an example of the thing that we need to do, because this is not an adolescent issue, is it? Or it's not only an adolescent issue, this individuation process, this choosing process. This is something that comes up time and time and time again in our lives. We become parents, And there's a whole new list of things that we can become attached to that really would distract us from God. A whole new list of responsibilities that get in the way of us following God, right? You become grandparents and there's a whole new list of things to worry about, right? (laughs) Or things to spend our time doing. At every stage in our life, with each new choice that we make, there's a whole new list of things that has the potential of getting in the way with our relationship with God. So this is not just a 12-year-old problem. This is a challenge that each and every one of us encounter. The Quaker church tradition uses what they call the test for indifference when they're making decisions as a, as a congregation. The, the test for indifference. What they ask the congregation or the decision makers to do is to make sure that there's nothing that's of higher priority than knowing the will of God. A building project, a curriculum choice, it doesn't matter what it is, but as the Quaker congregation gets together... The challenge is for each and every one of them to become indifferent to their personal priorities or decisions or dreams or choices. And so in this decision-making process, somebody is in the Quaker church is eventually going to ask every single person there, are you indifferent? This is their test for indifference. Are you indifferent? Have you prayed through to make sure that you're not hearing your own dreams and desires, but you're hearing the will of God, the voice of God. Are you indifferent? One of my favorite spiritual writers, Richard Rohr, says, all great spirituality is about letting go. There's a dinnertime conversation. Is that true? He says, all great spirituality is about letting go. That's something to ponder, isn't it? Or as Jesus said it, seek first the kingdom of God and let go of all of the other things. I'll take care of that, David Shaw's paraphrase. Finally, one of the the things that that got my attention in these past few weeks are the words that are used to describe how people felt when they heard from angels or when they, in, in this case, when Mary and Joseph heard from Jesus. Mary, it said, treasured these things. 
Other words that are used in the first couple chapters are pondering, or being troubled by, or wondering, or marveling at the things that they're hearing or being told. This episode of detachment was a challenge for Mary and Joseph. They had to ponder what Jesus had just told to them. They had to treasure it up. And boy, do I wish I knew how, that, exactly how that word uh, was being translated for Mary. How did she treasure, treasure this rebuke from her son saying, didn't you know I had to be in my heavenly father's house? Is that something you would treasure, just being kicked to the curb? Okay, that's a little strong. She wasn't being kicked to the curb. But Mary treasured that. She pondered that. Mary and Joseph prayerfully pondered the challenge of letting go of Jesus at age 12, beginning to recognize that he was no longer just going to do everything that they said. Yes, he would go home with them and he would obey them. But his loyalty to his heavenly father probably made him a better son to Mary and Joseph. And that's the transition that he was making. And Mary and Joseph were challenged, struggling with that. It's not easy, but gradually they came to the place where they could let go of Jesus and allow him to become what he was called to be, allow their 12-year-old son to eventually become the savior of the entire world. How might we ponder what we've heard today? How might we examine the things that have the the potential to become disordered loves for us, disordered attachments for us? Who or what are the things in your life that could become so important that they overshadow God's importance in your life? How might we come to the place where we could say, I'm indifferent to all of my own stuff, because I want first and foremost to know what Jesus wants me to do. Jesus put it uh, beautifully in in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, in, in Eugene Peterson's translation in the message. Jesus says, anyone who intends to come with me has to let me lead. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Can we hear Jesus saying that to us at the beginning of this new year? You're not in the driver's seat. Your opinion is not the most important one here. Your priorities, your to-do list, your bucket list is not the most important thing in your life. We make New Year's resolutions and then we probably, if you're like me, end up breaking them. New Year's resolutions are important, perhaps really important because they address some of these disordered attachments in our life. What role does food play in your life? What role do finances play in your life? What role does recreation play in your life? What role does free time play in your life? We make resolutions about these things. And I hope that this year, if you are a resolution-making person or if you want to entertain that as a possibility, I hope this year you'll think of it slightly differently by saying, what are the things that tend to get in the way of me following God? 
What are the things that get in the way of me hearing from God? What are the things that are a higher priority to me than knowing and doing the will of God? And how do I need to become detached from those things? How can I become indifferent of those things? How can I become more attached to my Heavenly Father than to anything else in the world? Would you bow your heads with me? And let's begin to pray that kind of a detachment prayer, a prayer for indifference. If you were going to make a New Year's resolution, what might it be? What is something that has already gotten under your skin to the point that you realize you need to make a change? What a great place to start detaching. What a great place to begin thinking about how God can become more than that. Father, we live in a we live in a world with so many priorities vying for our attention. So many things that the commercials make us believe are important, really important. So many ways to spend our money, so many ways to save and invest our money, so many ways to prepare for the future, so many ways, Father, so many ways to be distracted from hearing your voice. Lord, we thank you for the word of God, the written word of God, and more importantly, the living word of God, Jesus, in us through the Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray that you would make listening to the Word of God, pondering the Word of God, obeying the Word of God, our priority this year. Lord, I believe that you have gifted each and every one of us and that you have called each and every one of us every day to a mission a mission of building the kingdom of God wherever we spend our time. Maybe it's with grandchildren. Maybe it's with colleagues at work. Maybe it's with neighbors and friends. Maybe it's with the people that live under the same roof. Certainly it is. Father, we believe that you've gifted us. You've called us. You've invited us to be a part of your mission. Lord, I pray that you would show us what's getting in the way of being obedient to that mission, using those gifts. Lord, we pray as a congregation that you would continue to reveal to us a, a mission larger than anything that we could accomplish on our own, a mission that's going to mean all of us putting our spiritual gifts together and working as a team to accomplish your kingdom-building purposes through us. want to know what that is, Father. The Lord, we confess to you that we have disordered attachments, disordered love, things that are a higher priority 
than you. We confess that and we forsake that. We invite you to become our first love again. giving us the tools to follow you more closely, Lord. Thank you for giving us the example of Jesus who's willing to follow you first and foremost, even to the cross. It's in his name that we ask this. It's in his name and for his glory that we pray. And all of God's children say,